Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, an in-depth interview with writer Anne Nelson, who has been investigating the power of so-called dark money in US politics. That's to say cash that flows through the system without its sources being immediately identifiable or traceable. Anne's 2019 book, Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, has recently been updated to include the events of January the 6th, 2021, when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in Washington in an attempt to overturn Joe Biden's election as president. Shadow Network is a deep dive into the Council for National Policy, a secretive collective of wealthy funders, religious groups, right-wing activists and Republican insiders. As we'll hear, some of their members were linked to the Brexit campaign and have eyes on the NHS. There was a great interview with Anne at Byline Times by Emmy Award-winning journalist Heidi Sigmund Kuda, which I've linked to on the host page of this podcast. Anne began by telling me about the origins of the CNP. The Council for National Policy deliberately chose the most forgettable name they could find. So it took me at least six months to remember it. They were formed in 1981 after many of the members had helped to bring Ronald Reagan to office through marshalling Southern evangelical voters in his support. At that point, they figured that a lot of their causes were under threat by liberal court decisions and the federal government. They had resisted integration of schools. They'd resisted any attempt to control the tax-free operations of hugely profitable tele-evangelists and other evangelical business operations. They had a vision of American society that had its historical roots in the Confederacy, where white males dominated. And in fact, they had a theology that they were connected to called dominionism, which given that they were favored by God, they should have dominion over the rest of us and all of the earth. And the interesting thing about this organization, the Council for National Policy, is that it brought together different elements of a political machine. They had strategists like Richard Vigory. They had media moguls like the owners of Salem Media, which is a vast radio and online platform network of media operations. They had major donors like the DeVos family, Betsy DeVos's family from the Amway fortune in Michigan. And the idea was to to take on different areas of U.S. political and cultural life and use peculiar characteristics of the American system, like the Senate and the Electoral College, to take over the whole. So the things that unified them were a belief in Christianity and a particular evangelical form of Christianity and significant personal wealth. Yes, I've really struggled because their definition of Christianity is very far from a lot of Christians' (laughs) definition of Christianity. Let's just say that generosity towards the poor is not a big element. And in fact, you can kind of throw out all of the Beatitudes <laughs> at once. It's much more rooted in a kind of Old Testament Calvinist concept that God has chosen them as the elect. And that 
gives them, again, the, the right to have dominion over others. And if somebody isn't as fortunate and isn't as wealthy as they are, it's because God cursed them in terms of predestination. They deserve their fate. So rather than this Catholic idea of charity for the poor, it's almost a punishing aspect. And at the same time, it is very consonant with a sense of greed, which is that they should be able to accumulate all of the wealth, have the entire pie, and forget about any social programs or public services for everyone else. They don't deserve it. These people do. So there are even allies of this movement over the last 40 years, such as the Koch operations of the Koch brothers, where the Koch brothers are not particularly religious from any indication, but they're very much about accumulating the wealth and paying no taxes and diminishing social programs wherever they can. And how did they put these plans into action then? How did they work on the ground to progress their agenda? Well, actually, with phenomenal levels of strategy and planning. I mean, the more you look at American politics, the more impressive it is. So one of the architects of the Council for National Policy, Paul Weyrich, was a Washington operator. He was also one of the founders of the Heritage Institute, which is still a major player today. And you have this network of organizations. So you have the Washington inside the Beltway people pressuring people in government, not just the administrations they helped to bring to power, but also members of Congress. And if they've supported a Republican, they hold them to account and have these meetings that I document in Shadow Network where they march into the office and say, you're not tough enough on abortion, you're too easy on LGBT populations, and we'll withdraw our support. And in fact, they did. What I show is that they've been very aggressive in purging the Republican Party of moderates like Jeff Flake, of attacking Republicans who make deals with Democrats like John McCain. And they're quite aggressive in this. So these are people who you describe as being inside the beltway then, political activists, political insiders, people who have access to legislators. But a lot of their work was done, as it were, outside the beltway as well in other parts of America. I think that's what we would call their secret sauce, their state level operations. And these took two forms. One was that the Democrats became very entranced by the fact that they won general polls, their issues were popular, but they didn't look hard enough at the role of the states in the American political system, including states that are more lightly populated, are rural, are more heavily white and older. And the Council for National Policy and its allies looked very hard at this and saw that if they could dominate enough state houses and pass enough state level legislation, they could create undue influence in our political system. So right now, Republicans control 30 of the 49 state legislatures in the United States, and they have passed many state-level laws that are then leveraged by organizations such as ALEG, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is also run by a member of the Council for National Policy, another organization, the State Policy Network, again, run by a member of the Council for National Policy, then you've got this whole network of what are called family associations, 
which correspond to a very conservative fundamentalist psychologist named James Dobson, who has his own media empire. And this is a man who says, beat your children with a stick because you don't want to use your hand. They should associate that with affection. But if it doesn't leave a bruise, then it's not effective. I mean, we're talking about someone whose ideas are firmly rooted in the past. Certainly women should be submissive to men, et cetera. So you've got these state level operations passing totally regressive laws on social policy. Some of the most disturbing are denial of service laws that allow people not to professionally serve individuals because your religion says you don't believe in transsexuals and that you can deny people social services and medical care on that basis is very disturbing, but it's happening. And when it goes on in these states with what we consider to be weak legal systems and they are confirmed in their courts, then they leverage them across state lines. So right now we have this whole barrage of new legislation on abortion and LGBT rights that is spreading across these states. And now it's positioned to go into a Supreme Court, which has been stacked with judges in their favor. I'll add one more element, which is the grassroots organizations. Another organization run by a Council for National Policy member is the National Rifle Association, which is very, very active in political terms. Their members go door to door, they do lobbying, they do canvassing for political candidates, even though by law they're not supposed to. You've got an anti-abortion group called the Susan B. Anthony List, which sends out armies of women and girls to do door-to-door canvassing for their candidates. And it's the network effect you have to think about. No one component of this would be very effective if you didn't have the canvassers, the media, the big money, and the strategy all working in concert, which the Democrats do not have. And as you describe it, they've taken advantage of the decline of traditional news media across the United States, particularly the decline of local newspapers. Absolutely. What has happened in states like my native Oklahoma is that these hometown newspapers, which used to serve as a reality check, have died off largely because of financial considerations, the various economic shocks we've had and also the influx of digital media with no responsibility, digital platforms where falsehoods, fact, journalism, and propaganda can circulate freely. So you don't have the gatekeepers of newspapers where you have editors and fact checkers and lawyers who are overseeing the output. You've just got this Wild West, which has moved into the vacuum left by newspapers and created a tragic soup of disinformation. We're seeing it now on COVID in just a terrible way. As you describe it then, there is this network and their interest is in promoting regressive, reactionary legislation, much of which has been enacted at state level, who promote a low-tax, low-regulation kind of economy. But for all that, Obama was elected wasn't he? So it does prove that the Democrats can fight back against this. Biden was elected as well. So perhaps they're not quite as powerful as you suggest. Well, I would suggest that you look at Obama's victory in 2008 and the huge backlash 
that lost Congress for the Democrats in 2012. This is when they swung into action and implemented a whole new level of data operations, which turned out to be very effective. And I would say that they actually exercised these data operations and social media campaigns internationally. And the dress rehearsal for the Trump campaign was the Brexit campaign in the United Kingdom. It was looking at people outside urban areas, anxious voters who were maybe not so engaged politically and bombarding them with disinformation through social media and creating a kind of stealth victory when the major media were looking in the other direction. So this is also what happened with the Trump victory. When you look at the campaign that brought Biden to the presidency, I I just ask you to consider this. We had had a president whose failed COVID policies were criticized by the entire scientific establishment, and many held him responsible for the unnecessary deaths of half a million people. Nonetheless, in terms of the Electoral College, which defined the outcome of the election, Biden won by 44,000 votes in three states. To me, that is shocking. And there was crossover between the people involved in the Trump campaign and the people involved in the Brexit campaign. Absolutely. Steve Bannon has been an international ambassador for this movement, and he's been very canny in understanding some of the new dynamics And again, combining these new data operations, Cambridge Analytica has been a major part of this, and they have partnered with organizations in the United States. I've been connected to work in technology over the years, and one thing that really strikes me is that the progressives and the Democrats are very entranced by the newest technology, the shiny new things. And these people understand the power of retro. For example, they're very involved in local radio. Democrats have not wanted to talk about radio. Who cares about radio? Well, guess what? Millions and millions of people drive in their cars and they have the radio on. And this is one way to reach audiences. Text messages. They were out in front texting people. And for older, less educated voters, it turned out to be very effective. Much of your research then has focused on what we might term dark money flowing through politics on both sides of the Atlantic. How was dark money allowed to influence the political system in such a profound way? We had a moment some decades ago where a case called Citizens United went before the Supreme Court. And the ruling held that corporations could be treated as people in terms of political campaign contributions This ruling, which was adamantly opposed by other judges, really opened the floodgates for for dark money pouring into American campaigns. I need to say that it's both the Democrats and the Republicans, but it means that a lot of money can go behind certain candidates and create incredible pressure on them, as well as influence without knowing where it's coming from. And it also really diminishes the role of the citizen in the electoral process because the citizen is ever more insignificant compared to the corporate money that's coming in. This was a major issue in creating this structure that's connected to the Council for National Policy. And it's not just the CNP. 
they have many affiliates that surface in news reports. And you just have to do the homework and go back and say, oh, they're run by a leading member of the CNP. It's just a manner in which they can get together several times a year. They can communicate with each other and strategize together and bring together these disparate elements. So on January 6th, what you saw is a plan that went into action at the end of 2019. There are records from the Council for National Policy meeting where leaders are holding seminars on how to influence state legislators in the national election to affect the vote. So effectively, when Trump was defeated and there was what some people have termed an insurrection on January the 6th, your analysis is that the preparations for that defeat and the kickback against it had been in train for months before that. Oh, absolutely. And I laid it out chapter and verse in an article for the Washington Spectator which expands on the new final chapter of my book. And it's all there. You can go back and see the videos of them laying out the plan. And you also can see the phone calls between the head of the Council for National Policy and the Trump campaign, planning out the different steps. And it's what I call plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. The plan was for Trump to win the election legitimately. Relatively soon, it appeared that he would lose the popular vote. They said, all right, let's go to the Electoral College. Then it appeared they'd lose the Electoral College. All right, what's the next plan? Challenge the vote. Then you get a prominent member of the CNP, Cleta Mitchell, on the phone with Trump and Brad Raffensperger, who was the Secretary of State for Georgia in charge of certifying a Republican, certifying Georgia's vote. And Trump is telling him to magically create 12,000 votes for his victory. Cleta Mitchell is there as his lawyer advising him, and she has been spearheading the various operations to challenge our very way of conducting elections on a state level. So after the Raffensperger call failed, that's when they marshaled the troops to come to Washington and they organized a protest. The investigations are still underway about the relationship between their protest and the invasion of the Capitol. There's a lot we don't know about that. But it was very clear that leading members of the Council for National Policy, including Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, were issuing the call for their supporters to come to Washington and protest the results of the election. How close do you think the United States came to having a, I suppose you might call it a revolution, an overthrow of a legitimately elected president as a result of those January the 6th protests? I I think we came extremely close to a chaotic situation because our procedures required the certification of the Electoral College votes. And, you know, these procedures were designed by gentlemen with a lot of decorum in the 18th century. I don't think they anticipated this eventuality, so they didn't write it into the rules. So I would describe it more as a possible Reichstag fire. When Germany had its electoral process in 1933, you had this event that disrupted it and allowed enough chaos for the Nazis to take advantage of the situation and install themselves. 
And it didn't necessarily have to succeed. In Germany's case, it did. In the United States, whether it would have succeeded would have depended on so many elements, including the reaction of the military and various other forces. But it would have, as the British say, put a spanner in the works. The CMP didn't respond to requests for information or comment when Byline Times contacted them recently. And their whole operation, as befits the phrase dark money, is cloaked in secrecy. It is, by its very nature, a shadowy organisation. But journalists, and obviously you, have played a a huge role in bringing to light what they would prefer to be kept in the dark. Just talk to me a bit about that process of of secrecy and uncovering the reality of this organization. Well, let's remember that a lot of their operations are designed to appear what they are not. So, for example, they will have, quote unquote, news operations on video where the spokesman sits behind a news desk and has chirons just the way real news programs have, except that they're not real news because they only praise their Republicans and they only condemn Democrats. And there's not even an effort to commit real journalism. It's simply an exercise in messaging based on advertising principles. So, What they need is for their followers, who are often less educated and more rural Americans, to believe they're seeing news and to believe what they're seeing. Now, of course, this is, again, fatal in terms of COVID because they've been spreading a great deal of disinformation, as well as the big lie about the election. The same thing about their so-called grassroots organizations. When the Tea Party emerged in 2010, the U.S. press treated it as a spontaneous grassroots set of profit uh, protests. It was anything but. It was organized by the Koch operations. It was paid for handsomely and orchestrated on a state level. So by creating this kind of political theater They've achieved some of the veiled appearance of democratic operations, while it's actually controlled by very few fairly wealthy people. And how has it come to light then? Because clearly these are not people who are publishing minutes of their meetings and their discussions. Well, as the lady said, it takes a village. And I would say that there have been very, very few journalists in the U.S. who've been covering trying to cover them for a long time. And many of them are credited in my book and acknowledgements and footnotes. And they go back several decades. I think one of the problems was that people assumed that because the Council for National Policy was not well known, it was not effective. And that was, again, very intentional. They didn't want anyone to know what they were doing. And we have to remember, Washington is a culture where everyone's blowing their own horn and exaggerating their impact. Well, they're doing just the opposite. But you also had a major breakthrough when one of their membership directories was leaked to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which published it. And that was kind of my online guide for tracing who was who and who was doing what. And it was very interesting to me that you had the DeVos family of Michigan in the same directory with Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and many of these recognizable names that came together later in the Trump administration. So I worked from that 
I have now largely through Twitter encountered a community of researchers and there are a couple of independent investigative operations. One of them is called It's Documented. The other is the Center for Media and Democracy in Wisconsin. And they have managed to access extensive Council for National Policy records and post them online. So now we've got this trove of evidence of what they've been doing, who's involved. And only now, as of this week, you've got more follow-up on the part of major media. Jane Mayer has a very important piece in The New Yorker this week about the Council for National Policy state-level machinations. Another piece is coming out, major piece, in a couple of weeks. So I have worked along with my colleagues to put them on the map and shine a light on what they're doing in terms of anti-democratic activities. People hearing just the bare bones of this story, the idea that there are a bunch of businessmen operating in the shadows to promote this reactionary agenda, funding various groups which pose as grassroots organisations, but which are, are in fact astroturfing the argument. They might say, look, this is a classic conspiracy theory. I know that it's very well evidenced in your book that it isn't a conspiracy theory, but it it would suit the agenda of the people in this organization to say it's a conspiracy theory. It sounds like one, doesn't it? Well, my answer to that is that it is demonstrably a plan that was carried out in secrecy. And I have a thousand footnotes, literally, in my book to establish that. That's going back to their own original sources, which have not been questioned by anyone. The documentation in my book has not been questioned. And if they want to question it, it goes back to their own videos. So I felt initially in researching the book, I might be going out on a limb. And I just continued to document and I had the book extensively fact checked. And all I can say is that subsequent events have really reinforced my case including January 6th. The same organizations, the same people show up to a level that cannot be described as coincidence. I mentioned the fact that the CMP hadn't responded to requests for information or comment by Byline Times. Have they said anything to you? In all of this time, there's only been one tiny hiccup, which was an Amazon review by a man who says he was director of the CNP decades ago. And he hadn't read the book, but he didn't like it. And the CNP wasn't that important, he said. Otherwise, it's been radio silence. I have spoken with leading members of the CNP casually, but they don't give interviews about CNP activities. And I think they're probably not pleased at how much they have come to light. How worried should we be about their influence on American and Western politics in general? Well, right now, their activities on a state level with the Republican legislatures have been very successful. And a lot of Americans, and I would dare say a lot of Europeans, have been very complacent saying, oh, Biden won the election, everything's fine. You know, we're back to normal now. This is really not correct because they have laid the groundwork for the 2022 midterm elections. First of all, for 
quite possibly taking Congress through a legitimate victory. They've worked very hard on the state level, harder than the Democrats for decades. And that work and that networking and that media attention is bearing fruit for them. So if next year they take Congress, what they have announced that they would do in virtually so many words is to reverse COVID policies and dismantle public health measures. They have announced that they're against climate mediation policies. So you can expect the U.S. to withdraw from any progress it's made in terms of the Paris Accords or or anything else, as well as lifting environmental regulations on air and water quality. You can expect an attempt to roll back all kinds of social policies and social programs. This is their vision. They have not been shy about describing it. Now, is the rest of the world nervous about COVID and climate? Uh, I am. And the other thing that you would see if they take Congress is a whole massive attempt to rewrite electoral legislation in ways that would favor their candidate in 2024. At the moment, signs point towards that being Trump again. So is this concerning? Uh, I certainly think it challenges a sense of complacency. Because their members have been involved, to pick up on that last point, in voter suppression over the years. It's not just voter suppression. As I said, what is so sophisticated about their approach is that they come at an issue from many angles at once. So yes, they're trying to get out the vote among their evangelical supporters through a number of measures, but they're also pushing voting suppression measures in state legislatures. And right now they're trying to eliminate the role of secretaries of state on a state level to certify elections. And so they're trying to put the power to determine the outcome of the elections among their Republican supporters. And they know their supporters because they've purged the moderates and they've only allowed their supporters to persist. So as I pointed out in the Byline Times interview with with Heidi Kuda, they're attacking our electoral process from a number of different angles, but in state level operations that are very difficult for the national press to follow systematically. Of course, no democracy is perfect anywhere in the world. That, that's not realistic. But the United States is seen by many people as a shining beacon of democracy. The picture you paint is very, very different. Of course, people are allowed to have divergent opinions. That's the nature of democracy. But the process that you describe is one of persuasion. It's one of using dark arts and it's one of denying those who have a dissenting voice to be properly heard? Well, we live in a noisy society. I feel as though people are heard and maybe properly heard is the key because if you have too much noise, no voice comes through. And what they have done quite intentionally based on the architecture of Paul Weyrich is go after traditional architecture of knowledge. So it's not a coincidence that they're discrediting Dr. Fauci continually, discrediting the CDC, discrediting our leading universities, discrediting our leading journalists and their news organizations. And what they're telling their followers is don't trust them. 
these authorities are lying to you. They're manipulating you. And of course, what they're doing is bombarding them with contrafactual information, often damaging, which is creating a different authoritarian structure and creating a level of division within the United States that we haven't seen since the Civil War. When you have people who one side says, all right, the science tells me to get vaccinated, and the other side says, oh, but my fundamentalist television station says that vaccines will cause my body to become a magnet. You're not just on different pages, you're in skew lines. And that's what our information culture is struggling with right now. And that won't be resolved one way or the other with the midterms. This is going to be a long-term issue. The CMP, as far as I'm aware, doesn't operate in Britain, but there are clear parallels between the way in which they operate and the division they are causing in the United States and the way politics is playing out here. Oh, they're very interested in Britain, and Steve Bannon has been very interested in Britain. You can see figures and people related to figures in the CNP working very closely with forces in Britain. So, for example, the same cell phone app developer worked on Trump's and a Brexit app. They also have worked with right-wing organizations in Western Europe and Canada and Australia. You're looking at countries that have certain demographic similarities, and they've also got some conservative white business interests that really don't want to see the erosion of their power in the long term. So this makes sense to them. Reading the tea leaves from what I've seen, I would think that their target number one is, is the National Health Service. And you can see that there would be enormous profits that would come to the big pharmaceutical companies in the United States if they were able to deconstruct the NHS in Great Britain and make it more of a profit-oriented health system like the United States. And what, what I wish British people would realize is that if they were successful, this, would, this is not just how much you pay for a doctor's visit. It's reconstructing society for an entirely different philosophy where corporations pump unhealthy practices like fast food and cigarettes into a population for one level of profits. And then the illnesses that they generate create another level of profits for you know, other or related conglomerates. And it's, it's really a, a system that has caused a, a great deal of psychological crisis for American physicians because they are basically working on a corporate model when a lot of them would like to be serving humanity. So I really wish that the, the brilliant British academics and researchers and journalists that I've met could somehow join forces to thoroughly investigate the way that these forces are at work in Britain on the financial and media fronts, and then also the way that they're reaching into pockets of British voters to build the support for making these massive radical changes in British society. Anne Nelson and her book, Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, is available now. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast. You can read more on stories like this at bylinetimes.com. 
Subscriptions to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, pay for that website and this podcast. So please subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.